Ray Ferraro in your more than 1,200 games in the NHL, who were the three toughest opposing players? Okay, so there's lots of different ways of being a, a tough opponent. Mm -hmm. um, so the fighter guys, they, they never really bothered me too much because what were they going to, you know, I mean, they weren't going to fight me. I certainly wasn't going to fight them. So the guys that, that I would come head to head with most often were the toughest guys for me. So number one, without a doubt, is Chris Chelios. Um, when I came, when I turned pro in Hartford in December of 84, uh, Chris had turned pro in September of 84. And so we played the first part of our career, Montreal and Hartford, all the time. And I hated him because he was mean, he was dirty, and he was really good. And I found him to be just an impossible guy to play against. Uh, second one, also in that old Adams division, was Dale Hunter. And, of course, we know with the Islanders, we know Dale from uh, his days in Washington. But when he was in Quebec, he was – well, he was – he was vicious no matter where he played. And so he would be my number two. And number three, he never got me, but I was always terrified of Scott Stevens. And there's certain guys you would always know where they were on the ice or tried to keep track of them. And Scott was one of them. I mean, he played. The thing I think that made me most uneasy about him was he played with no visible emotion. So like he... He never, he never talked on the ice. He never looked angry. You just knew that, like, that was kind of a no-go zone. So those would be my, I would say, my three, three of my most very top players to play. Understandably fierce competitors. You're listening to the Hockey Press Pass podcast, an insider's look at the media. Presented by Instat Hockey, my name is Chris Botta. Our guest is Ray Ferraro, who had an outstanding NHL career with the Whalers, Islanders, Rangers, Kings, Blues, and Thrashers, and is now one of the best analysts in the business. In addition to his work at TSN, Ray is a big part of ESPN's return to NHL coverage this season. So, Ray, was there a point in your playing career where you started to think maybe I could make a run at extending being in hockey as a broadcaster, as an analyst? You, you know, Chris, there, I really hadn't given much thought because I was still, I was still in the mid to late point of my career when this thing happened. So um, I was with the Rangers. I had signed as a free agent, leaving the Islanders, and um, I had uh, I had scored twenty five goals in fifty four games. Um, things were in my opinion, we're going just fine. And then one day I get a phone call at home and I'm traded to, to the Kings. So uh, myself, Matty Nordstrom, Nathan Lafayette, Ian LaPerriere, uh, for Yari Curry, Shane Curry, Shane Churla, and Marty McSorley. And so like that, boom, I'm with a team that I felt was a pretty good team to a team that was completely rebuilding. Gretzky had been traded a couple of months before. So I get out to L.A. and, I, you know, I don't really know, like it just, it was like a thunderbolt. And so I got a call, my agent, Steve Bartlett, got a call from uh, a guy at ESPN who turned out to be uh, a mentor and a friend. Um, but he cold called my agent. His name was Barry Sachs. And Barry was uh, the head of talent at ESPN, too, the guys that are on, and girls that are on the air. He called my agent and said, hey, would Ray be interested in coming in and doing some TV work? And so 
my agent called me and he said, would you be interested? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I've never done it before. And it's like, well, they want you to go in and cover, you know, do the first round on NHL tonight. I don't know anything about television. I don't know what's going on, but I'm like, well, I'm going to be out of the playoffs. So sure. I'll, I'll go. So I go there and, uh, uh, Billy Pito was the host and Barry Melrose was of course the analyst. And, um, so I did it for two weeks and I guess it went well because the next year they said, Hey, would you come, come back for a month? So by being traded to the Kings, I got traded to a team that wasn't a playoff contender, but I also got traded to a place that afforded me this opportunity to, to actually have a chance to broadcast. And what I found was I really liked it. I thought it was fun. I, I think it came rather naturally even though I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Like, I'm telling you, Chris, like the first day I took my jacket off after, after we finished and like I had a light blue shirt on and it was dark blue. I had sweated through the entire thing. And I was like, that I was terrified, but I, I, I liked it. I liked it. And so I was really lucky that Barry Sachs had seen me play with the Islanders and then with the Rangers and saw me do a bunch of interviews and figured, Hey, I think this guy could maybe do this. Let's try him out. Well, I remember, you know, it did make sense because when we knew each other on Long Island, you, you love sports. Not all yes. athletes do. You love professional golf. You love you follow the other major team sports leagues. So I, I wonder if like maybe being a, a consumer and a fan of those broadcasts uh, kind of inspired you or uh, over time started to shape your style. Uh, you know, like my, my style, you mean on the air? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? It's really kind of interesting. A lot of guys start in TV, and this was my experience and has been my experience. They put you on TV and nobody tells you anything. Mm. They just kind of pitch you out there and if you're decent, then you get more opportunity. And if you're not, they go to the next person. And so nobody really told me anything. And then all of a sudden I was on the air. And so, I, I mean, there were certain guys that I liked, um, you know, that I listened to that I found were really good at what they did, um, you know, but I, I don't know that, like the way you broadcast when I started was different than the previous generation and the way you broadcast now is different than even when I started. So like, I always thought Bill Clement was really good. And one of the things I liked about Bill was he didn't really seem to have much uh, fear. Like he said what he thought. Um, I thought he was really fair. And I thought he kind of tried to have some fun with it. And so you know, the, the, to me, the gold standard of color analysts has been John Davidson. Yeah. And I, I thought JD was, was the very best because he would tell a story in the midst of the game, yet he wouldn't go off way off this path that you didn't know, you know, like it wasn't an inside story. He was very familiar with it. Now, because I don't think almost, I don't think any other sport except for basketball probably, which I didn't know as well, lends itself to uh, the analyst position like hockey. Baseball, football, you've got to start and a stop to every play. Every pitch in baseball, there's the, the clean in and the clean out. Football, I mean, guy hits the ground, it's the analyst talk, and then 
when the when the quarterback comes up under center, it's time for the play-by-play guy. Well, hockey, that's not like that. So I think, you know, John Davidson and Bill Clement were really the two guys, as I got thinking that, gee, I might be interested in this, the two guys that I, I kind of found, a, you know, not, not a direct connection to, but a, an understanding of what they were trying to do. Oh, that makes sense. Two great ones. You're, after you finished playing, take me to your first game in a press box next to a play-by-play announcer as an analyst. Tell tell us about that game. What do you remember about it? Well, my first game was I was still at ESPN. Um, for some reason, they were going to add another broadcast the next night. So it's about 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. I'm sitting on the set, and my producer says, uh, they want you in Dallas to do a game tomorrow night. I'm like, to do what? And they're <laughs> like, to, do it, to be the analyst. Well, I've never done a game before. So... Um, I sit there I'm, I don't know what to do so I called Darren Pang and I'm like hey Panger they want me to do this game tomorrow what do I do and he's like oh you'll be great at you know Pang Darren, if people don't know Darren he's the most positive guy Sunshine. on the planet and he's like you'll be fine you'll be fine make a couple of notes on each player and he goes who's doing the play by play and I said uh, Dave Strader he goes oh you were with the best he said Strades will handhold you so I get down there, I get to Dallas the next day, it's noon, it's an Edmonton-Dallas playoff game. I don't know what's going on. And so we're sitting at a meeting, and they say, uh, uh, what do you want to talk about in the Open? And I'm like, the Open? What? Like, I don't know, what's the Open? And they're like, the part of the game before the game. And I'm, it's, like, I'm laughing because like you've watched broadcasts all your life, but of course, sure. you, we, who thinks of these things, right? You don't really think about like, the cold like, open. That's what it's called, the open? <laughs> I, I don't know. And so Dave um, you know, kind of says, okay, we could talk about this and we could talk about that. I'm like, okay. So I go and I'm finishing my notes all afternoon and I, we get to the game and uh, we rehearse and so they want us to they want us to do the open. So I've never done a game before. We do the open on the ice. And now we've got about two minutes in the commercial break to get to the elevator upstairs to the booth. So like I'm, I couldn't be more panicked by the time we get to the booth. So we get there, the play starts and the puck's going up the ice. It's going back down the ice. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I'm just sitting there and Dave is talking. And he asks me, finally, he brings me into the broadcast because he's like, this guy might not say anything for the next two hours. <laughs> so he asks me a question and I start, you know, I, I, so now I'm kind of in the broadcast. Dave always joked that the biggest mistake of his career was asking me a question because then I never shut up. <laughs> now, Dave has passed away just a few years ago and always one of the very best, most professional broadcasters but what a kind, nice man to be around to, for my first game to have Dave nice. literally handhold me through it. Um, it just, it, it, it was, it also gave me this jolt of, oh man, I like this more than studio. Nice. I, I like, I like that you don't get to rehearse anything. The game happens. You start and, you analyze. I, I, and that was, to me, it was in my first game, I knew, like, I think I like this better than the studio stuff. 
we know that, and, and it's very moving to hear you talk about Dave Strader and what a blessing to have him be the guy on your first game. Um, let's think about this as your, your color commentator on a regular game in a non-pandemic where you're on the road in some building, uh, you have your morning skate, you talk to the equipment managers, the players, you do whatever you want. But when you go up to the booth, now all these years later, not your season pro, uh, what are you bringing with you? Do, you know, the play-by-play -play announcer has this chart. The little bit I did it, I scribbled notes, like little storylines, little factoids of a guy. There's so much you bring to the game, having played it so well and, and being so knowledgeable of it. But are you, do you have anything with you that you're bringing? Yeah, I have, I, I have a, a game sheet for each team. Um, so I have everybody's name, number, stats, uh, relevant stats. Uh, and then if there's something interesting going on about each player, I try to find a nugget, uh, scoring streak, uh, uh, changed his curve, um, you know, was benched, sat at the lineup, back into the lineup, things like that. By the time I get to the game, though, uh, that sheet is mostly a memory exercise. Um, I rarely look at it um, during the game because I, I think my my number one focus and job is the play that's going on when it's finished, um, whether it's still in the play or whether it's a highlight package on a whistle, I think it's my job to tell the viewer or to share with the viewer my experience and why something happened. Like, I hope you never hear me say, you know, uh, here's David Pasternak, he's got the puck, uh, look at him shoot it through the defenseman's feet and the goalie makes the save. Anybody watching on TV has a TV and they've got eyes and they can see that. It's my job to say, how did Pasternak create the room? How did he back the defenseman off? Did he use his edges to slow down, to push the D back? Did he pull the puck around the guy's stick? Did he use the D as a screen? Was he trying to catch the goalie moving left to right? Like that's my, that's my focus in the game. Now I've got all these notes and lots of times, Chris, a third of them get used. Uh, the rest of them are just, they're just there. The little bit I did it, I had like, you know, I had a whole list. Barry Landers would elbow me, like, it's your time to talk. I did some couple Islander games. And by the second period, he'd elbow me, like, I got nothing left. Because <laughs> I didn't. Right. You, you got to be careful about not emptying the tank. That's, uh, <laughs> you don't want to blow all your good stuff out in the first I also period. wasn't a junior. You know, I didn't get 1,000 goals in junior and played 1,200 games in the NHL, <laughs> too. So that's all I had. Um, when you have a, I'm going to, you know, we haven't talked about this, but I, you know, you a little bit. When you have a, I could see you maybe leaving the arena some night and, and saying to uh, to your guys, uh, oh man, I, that wasn't my best one or something like that, right? So so when that happens, it, do you go back and watch it? Do you think, oh, what, what do I got to do for the next one to get better? Um, I, there, are, there are segments of a game I will watch um, if I don't like it, if I'm not sure how something played out. Uh, I'll get my the producer, you know, it might not happen immediately, it might be the next day, I'll say, hey, you know that five-minute segment in the second period there uh, around this play, can you send that to me? And so I'll listen to it. Um, my, my, if, if I'm to self-evaluate, uh, my biggest problem is 
the brevity of a comment is super important because in the neutral zone, it's fine, right? You can kind of talk over the play. But every once in a while, you get burned where the play turns over and somebody scores and you're telling some great story about someone's skates. And it it's so it's frustrating, it's embarrassing, and it shouldn't it shouldn't happen. So I equate it to this. You're driving down the road, you're on the highway, you can see your exit ramp, but the traffic is so jammed up, you can't get to the exit ramp. But you know you gotta get there, and you can't get there, and pretty soon you miss the ramp. And you're like, in that moment, you're like, oh now what? That's what it feels like when you should stop or an analyst should stop. Sometimes I'm like, I can't get the exit ramp. I can see it. I know I got to stop. I can see what's happening, but I can't put a period on the thought. And then you hope like heck the goalie makes a save because when it goes in the net and you're talking, that is, that, that's, it's just, it's not a good feeling. Yeah. Do, is there a balance where a goal is scored I see this in soccer. I feel like a lot of times the soccer color commentators are always pointing out what went wrong. Why the Red Bulls messed this up or the Whitecaps messed this up and not often about what went right. Now, as a player, you can empathize as to maybe where something went wrong, but a lot of times it's actually the brilliance of the play. Sometimes it's luck. Do you sometimes get two acts at it where you're saying this is why the Bruins scored? This is why the Rangers gave it up. Like, is there a balance there, or is it you see the goal and it's the first thing that comes to your mind as to what happened there? Um, I, I I endeavor to point out both because I I often say, and I really think this, it's rarely one thing. It's often a combination of things. Like everybody wants to know why is a team bad tonight. Why is that player making that mistake? Like, they want one answer. The problem with that is it's generally more than one thing. So a play can be two things. A defenseman or a forward can lose his check, and I think it's my job to point that out. However, the second part of that is, you know, the guy could still plunge it in the goalie's pads, but he's made a nice move, a toe drag, he's bought some time, he's got his head up, he's made a nice shot. I want to present both things. Um, uh, to the viewer because look I even I even remember as a player we'd be doing a, a checking drill and somebody would score and or somebody would get a scoring chance and right before the scoring chance happens the coach would blow the whistle because they're so worried about the defensive mistake they failed to see that there was actually a nice play made look I, I'm a fan of really good defensive games but Nobody's jumping out of their seat for a 0-0 game. I want offense. I like goals. I think goals bring excitement. Yeah. You know, I, I, I get into this every once in a while and uh, where people say, well, that one nothing game was amazing. Yes, you're right. That one was. The previous 12 stunk. Mm-hmm. They were no good. I think it's, A, it's more fun. It's more positive. It's more enjoyable to present what happened from the offensive side as opposed to saying, well, this team can't do this. They can't do this. They can't do this. Oftentimes, I'll try and get both in the same highlight. That's awesome. Um, great point. I, when I traveled with the Islanders, get on the plane, 
coach pops in while well, he used to pop in a DVD. No, everybody's, however, everybody's consuming this stuff right, now. Right. I'm showing my age from 12 years ago. God yeah, forbid. there's no DVDs anymore. Yeah, exactly. They're not waiting to the plane. They're actually watching it on the bench during the period, right? Right. My point is, is that almost a little bit to my surprise, a lot of times, most of the times, the coaches, uh, assistant coaches are watching it with the sound on. And so it makes me wonder, do you hear, if not in-game, maybe even the next day, you're not, you're not harshly critical in the games that I've seen, but, or maybe even just, oh, you know, I, I think you might've got that wrong. This is my take on what happened here. Or, you know what, next game, show more love to this guy, because I think, you know, so do you hear from coaches? I, I, not a lot. Um, uh, every once in a while, uh, I'll hear from, a coach uh, who might not agree with my take on a play, and um, yeah, that's that's okay. I, I I hear more, not a lot, but I hear more from players that haven't um, you know haven't been too enthused with my analysis of their game. Um, and that, that's okay. They're 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 allowed to say that. They're. Do those players, does that convert, whether it's a text, does it end civilly? Uh, no, most? a couple of times it's been in the hallway, oh. like at a morning skate or a practice. And there was this one player and um, he said, uh, hey, why are you always on me in the games? And I said, well, I don't like the way you play. I think you, I think you try to hurt people. Oh. And he said, well... You know, he, he didn't really agree. And I said, I think if you got a guy in a vulnerable spot, you try to hurt them. And I, I don't think that's the way the game should be played. And he said, well, if they're in a vulnerable spot, I try to make the hit as hard as I can. And so we, you know, I wouldn't say we chatted. It was more than that, but it wasn't a full-scale argument. And then he made his point. I made my point. He left. I left. And and that was that. Word about so It's okay, Chris. Like, yeah. It's okay. He's, yeah. I'm giving my opinion on his job, so he can give my his opinion on mine. And you're okay. you're showing up the next day, and he's I got no problem. It's the day after too. I would be a little concerned about right after games because guys can get hot. Right. Morning after is a little better, and uh, I'm curious about effort. Like maybe if you've ever pointed out that you felt like a player just didn't have the the giddy up or the jam, and well, because... I mean there is a there is a YouTube clip of me early in my career. Uh, with Patrick Steffen yeah. and uh, Patrick has a breakaway on an empty net. Well, that's, that's a different thing altogether. I mean, the thing is when I, you know, you can't explain to everybody, but I played with Patrick in Atlanta. I, I, I knew Patrick very well. I knew what he was doing and it bugged me that he just didn't shoot it in the middle of the net. You're, you know, we're, and so I just, it just kind of like, woof, and it came up. Now, it wouldn't have been as big a deal except the Oilers took the puck, went down, scored, and sent the game into overtime. So, you know, I kind of got caught up in the emotion, but honestly, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change who I am. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I think this, um, my, if I had a mission statement, it would be this. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be fair. And I'm never going to forget how hard it is to play the game. But in that means at times I'm going to have to be critical of something that goes on. Look, any mistake a guy is making on the ice, I've made it before. I mean, I, if you play 
1,200 games, you're going to make a hell of a lot of mistakes. And, and I did, and I have, and so I think I can relate to that. But, it, but I think the people watching at home, they can tell when a mistake's made. If I go, oh, gee whiz, that guy really tried hard. Yeah, so what? Everybody's trying hard. I'm supposed to point out why it didn't go well in that moment. I'm not saying the guy's a terrible player. I'm saying in that moment, that thing went wrong because of this. And chances are I've made that mistake. And it, it sounds to me like, though, you've never had a situation where it really stuck with you, stuck in your craw, that it, you had your conversation with the different players and then you moved on. Was, has there ever been one where you, you're just like, man, he just never got my point and I wish, I wish it was better with him? Uh, you know what? Maybe if I was younger, mm-hmm. I think that would, would happen. I, I've gotten to this point where, and it's taken me a long time, and a lot of it is really, you know, with my wife is Cammy. Um, uh, Cammy Granado, yeah. for those that don't know, is my wife. And she's just a, she's an amazing person, but she has an amazing um, view of things. And she's like, if, if you're spending all your energy trying to make everybody agree with you, you're going to have no energy left for anything else. Because my job is analysis and opinion. And the fact is, everybody has the same thing. The people sitting on the couch watching, they're analyzing the game while they're watching it. They have opinion while they're watching it. What is the chance that I'm going to get everybody watching to agree with me? Yeah. And the answer is you just, you just can't. That's great wisdom from Cammy Grinnell. It's nice to be share a home with one of the greatest hockey players of all time, uh, who also yeah, happens I, I, also I, I do, to be a good person. Say, Chris, yeah. I do have to say the kids every once in a while will say, uh, the younger one in particular, Reese, he'll go, hey, Dad, are you in the Hall of Fame? No, Reese, I'm not in the Hall of Fame. Mom is in the Hall of Fame. I think he just likes asking me that. He knows the answer. It's probably nothing you haven't heard before, but I should tell you, you know, I worked for five years, not anymore, in the National Women's Hockey League, and and you should know, and please uh, pass this on, although she's probably heard it a million times before, from the founder, uh, Danny, to every player, uh, how much... Cami Granado means to them, and, and and a lot of times they talk about not just the championships, but also the person and how she carried herself, and now what she's doing in the NHL. Like, it's, it's she's she's an icon to a lot of people. Um, oh, thank you for saying that. Special. She is, um, you know, she took a break here for about ten years when with the kids uh, when they were young, and I think she was a little surprised when she was ready to come back to the game, how much the game wanted her back. And uh, I'm super proud of her. And I, I just knew when she, when she was ready, um, the game would be ready for her. That's great. With a great team, excited for that. Um, your role uh, with a network partner, a league network partner, there is a perception. And I think it's different for analyst color commentators. You, call, you, you work the game, you analyze the play. But there is a perception, and I'll say it's often mine, that that if that if you're calling for a league partner, that there's there's a friend, there's a relationship there, right? Like you're not going to be overly critical of the league or overly critical of owners or anything. And there, and I would say there's even a perception, which I don't believe to be true, having worked in the league, that there's even some grand meeting where rules are dictated upon networks. What what would you say to that? Like, has anyone ever told you what 
to say or what not to say? Never. Not one time. Uh, I had a general manager call me in and he was not happy with an opinion I had of a trade deadline that went by. And he was furious with my analysis of it. And I let him talk. And I said, look, I, if you want to employ me, it's a different thing. But I don't work for you. I work for my boss. And I have to be as honest as I can. And so that was my evaluation. So of course we agreed not to this or not to agree. And then I went on my way. I've never had anybody from the league say, um, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we don't want you criticizing this trade or that team or that. I was like thinking I, maybe, I never had it happen. I was thinking, I guess the only, just you'd brought it up about some one zero games are actually not exciting maybe it becomes a chess match and the coaches and the mm -hmm. overchecking or whatever you want to call it you know maybe if you've ever heard from a, a league employee saying hey ray can you not so often can yes. you not point out well, that like mostly the officials okay and um quite, quite frankly because i think it could be better yeah. and and this and this is how i think it can be better it, one time the tax code was probably about five lines long. Now, nobody knows what the tax code is and you need a, you know, an accountant and a this and a that to get through your tax return. At one time, the rule book was about 10 pages long. Now, through 100 years of hockey, there's addendums and addendums to that addendum. Nobody knows what the hell is going on. Nobody knows what the standard is, even though they try to redefine it all the time. So my view, and this, and I've been really consistent, and I hear from the league because they don't agree with my take at times on this, is that I think you look at the most uh, consistently called eight or nine or ten penalties: tripping, hooking, slashing, charging, uh, interference, boarding, whatever they are, and you define in each of them what the rule is in 2021. You make it very simple. It's if you you'll have a couple of subsets to each rule, mm -hmm. but we're not. Th hey, it used to be this, and what about that? No, you made a subset on it, and then you move forward with these rules, and you support and guide the officials to call these rules that you've now redefined. To me, that's my biggest beef with the league, and I, I would I would say that's the one. So I'm going to back up and say, yeah, I have heard from the league okay. on, uh, you know, and it's about that. Because, Chris, I don't think it's wrong to say the game is better than it's ever been. More talented, more skilled. But why can't it be better? Like, why can't something be, you know, at level seven and we try to make it level eight? And you're coming why at not? it from the spirit of you just want the game to be better. So I, I, I think I, the game can be better. Why, why should we ever stop? trying to be better i'm i'm 57 years old i i'm still trying to be better right like i'm i'm not quitting i i'm not the same person i was five years ago so why should the league say yeah these are our rules and that's what we got it, to me it's to me it, it's it's short-sighted on a lighter note do you get the feeling that 
uh, do you hear <laughs> sometimes I see you respond to fans on social media um, you do it nicely most of the time I think or with a sense of humor uh, right. so it seems like you, you, they always think and I get it you're a sports fan um, they always think you're a fan of the their the team that they're playing Right. Um, did you have to learn to stop, even though you might have some fun with it, even though it might get under your skin once in a while, did you have to learn fairly early on to let that go? Yeah, because it's impossible to make people understand. What I, what I tell everybody that ever, if there's anything in my orbit uh, about that, I, I, I tell them quite honestly and quite directly, you will have to work really hard to find somebody that cares less than me about who wins. I could care less. I want the game to be good. I want it to be fun. And then I want it to be over so I can get to the next one. If, if the Islanders win the Stanley Cup and I see those fans rejoice, like I know they're just bubbling to do, I'm going to feel great for them. But honestly, I don't care. I don't get a Stanley Cup ring. My name doesn't go on the cup. I don't get a day with the cup. What do I care? I don't know anybody on that. I know Matt Barzell, but I mean, I don't know anybody on that team. I want my friends to do well, and I want the games to be good. I want to do a good job when I broadcast, and I could care less who wins. I, honestly, it would be hard to find somebody that cares less than me. One of the biggest challenges is when I love a player and I love the way he plays. I got to remind myself, and Pavel Datsuk was one, not to be the head of his fan club. Like I had to remind myself. You did love him. Just, just let that play go. I've, I've talked about Pavel sixteen times tonight. I just love the way he played the game. I hadn't thought about this, but you raised it. I hope you don't mind me asking. You, you know, you wake up one day and and you have two close relatives who work for teams now. Is there a going to Don Granado is your brother-in-law and head coach yeah. of the Buffalo Sabres. Cami Granado, a, a top scout with the Seattle Kraken, if I have that correct, her title. Yes. Um, will there be any position that you'll take there or has that yet to be, you know, no, I, I nobody, think there's, there's, common, there's common sense there, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm... And nobody said you're not going to do a Seattle game or you're not going to do a Buffalo game. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's not that comfortable, in particular Dawn coaching in Buffalo, mm. because Cammie's a scout. Sure. She's not on the bench. She's not impacting that night. Mm. It, it, it's not comfortable. If, if I'm doing a Buffalo game and they're losing 7-1, to one, like... I hope that doesn't happen. Right. Right? But that's like, what I was going to say. There's common sense there. Right? If the Sabres are losing right. 6 nothing, then let's hope those days are behind them. It, you're not going to start talking about how Don Granado is the greatest coach and he, no, he's got all the... I'll, you know I'll I mean? find so, something else. Yeah, so that's... I'll, I'll, find, I'll find something else uh, to talk about. I, I mean, conversely, the, you know, the greatest moment I've had broadcasting a game was when my son Landon was playing for Boston and, uh, and I interviewed him uh, after the second period of it, it turned out to be his first game for Boston. I just happened to be doing the game in Toronto. And my producer says with about three minutes left in the second period, you're going to interview Landon, uh, after the period. I'm like, Oh no, I'm not. And he's like, Oh yeah, I, I've already talked to the PR. So usually that gets done in the hallway. 
So I'm between the benches. And I could see Landon skating off the ice. I mean, literally, Chris, my son is five feet from me during the game. It's like the coolest thing. And I see him talk to the PR guy. And I see him say TSN interview. And Landon goes, okay. And he points to the bench. And Landon turned. And it was then it kind of realized I was doing the interview. And he had this look on his face like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, get over here. Like, just get over here. And I was, it, I was so excited. I don't even really remember how I did it. I, I saw the video after. I was talking with my hands a lot. But it was so cool. You know, conversely to your question, yeah, I yeah. mean, it was That's it was amazing. An amazing opportunity. Uh, Going to bring you back for a second segment to talk uh, about uh, your time at the Islanders. I was going to say our time, as if I had a role. Um, and uh, but I did have one last question. If you had a minute, to, do you think of the for the people who want to get into broadcasting? Who are the people? And it could be in any sport. Some of the ones you've worked with, some you've just watched, sideline reporters, everything, journalists. Who are the ones that, that you think of that would be inspirations, the ones that you admire who serve as good role models for future journalists, broadcast reporters? Well, here's the thing. There's all kinds of different types of reporters. There's different ways mm -hmm. to be involved. Now, I'm an analyst. I don't do investigative journalism. I don't I'm not an insider, you know, like I'm not digging for scoops. I'm not looking for which coach is going to get fired. So it depends what your, you know, your engine is, what your desire is. But my, what I would say is that there was nobody that can't be an influence, either good or bad. You might learn from somebody's delivery. You might learn from the way they present their information. Um, like they're, there are sideline reporters in football that are fantastic and others not so much. How could everybody be the best? That's not mm -hmm. the case. How could everybody be the best analyst? Now, I enjoy Tony Romo. I, I really do. And, and one of the reasons is I get the feeling that he loves what he's doing. He's excited about what he's doing. And he presents it that way. So I, I would say, yeah, I, I really... I really like him. I like a baseball, like I've always thought Rick Sutcliffe was really good in baseball. He's smart, he's sharp, he's dry, funny, you know, like, and, and I, I kind of like that. So those are just a couple of other sports. Um, you know, like, for example, uh, Daryl Ray does the games in Dallas. And Razor is a wordsmith. I mean, he uses words I don't know what they mean. He spins them into the game. He's got a real cerebral way of broadcasting, and it's all a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I really like it. I think Darren Pang is, you know, he's a good buddy, so I'm biased. Yeah. Panger is awesome because he brings just incredible energy to everything that he does, whether he's on a game or a studio. So I would say if you're going to do this, love what you do. Don't be shy to take advice. If somebody asks you, can you do a sideline report? Tell them yes. And even if you don't know how to do it, figure it out. Like whatever, you don't know where it's going to be. I thought I was a studio guy. Now I've been 20 years in the booth. Mm. Like who knew? I didn't. Great advice. When we come back, Ray and I will reminisce about his time with the New York Islanders. Hey guys, it's producer Pat Boyle. And I want to tell you about Instat Hockey. 
Instat Hockey offers the largest statistical data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Their work is trusted at every level of the game by coaches, scouts, players, and of course, members of the media like the people we spotlight each week on Press Pass. There's no better choice than Instat to help in the evaluation of games and individual players. The Instat Hockey platform saves the user hours of time watching game film as team and player statistics are pre-cut into separate playlists, including players' individual shifts. All video clips can be edited, shared, and downloaded by the user. Chris has used the platform for years, he trusts it, and so have some of the head coaches he's worked with in the past. So I hope you check them out. And they were also the first to give Hockey Press Pass some love. So please visit instatsport.com hockey today for more info. Again, visit instatsport.com hockey for more info. Hey everybody, it's Chris with a word about our sponsor, DraftKings. Week one in the NFL may be over, but the season's just getting started at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off week two, DraftKings is giving all new customers a can't-miss offer. Bet just $1 on any football game this week and receive $200 in free bets instantly, no matter what. That's right. All new customers get $200 in free bets instantly when they bet at least $1 on any football game. DraftKings is safe, reliable, and secure, making it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PRESSPASS to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code PRESSPASS to get your $200 in free bets instantly. This week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey only, new customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Hockey Press Pass, presented by Instat Hockey. We're back with Ray Ferraro of ESPN and TSN. Ray, I want to spend some time talking about your time with the Islanders. Uh, it was, I believe it was your first trade. So how did you hear about it, and what did you think? Because I, I believe you loved being a whaler. I did. I, uh, I knew my time was up, though. Rick Lee was the head coach, and um, we were not seeing eye to eye. And um, so, you know, and I, I was off to a rough start. I think I had two goals in the first 15 or 16 games. And so I go to practice one day. Now, so you got to remember here. This is before cell phones, so that, which makes, but which makes the trade better. So, it's November of 1990. I uh, I come home from practice, and there's a message on. Remember the red flashing dot mm-hmm. on your phone? And I'm like, oh, message. So I punch the message machine. I'm home by myself, and it's a message from uh, Eddie Johnson, the general manager in Hartford, his his assistant, and she says. Uh, uh, Ray, it's Eddie Johnson's assistant. Um, can you give us a call back when you get a chance? So I'm like, well, I know what that is, right? Like, he's not calling to see what I eat for lunch. So I call back. EJ's out for lunch. <laughs> she says, yeah, he'll call you back when he gets back. Well, no cell phone. He can't call me from lunch or whatever. So I'm sitting there. I got a copy of the hockey news on the kitchen table. So I'm going through the 
the, the hockey news trying to figure out who needs a center. Like, I know I'm traded. I don't know where. So I sit there about an hour later, the phone rings. And I'm like, well, this is it. So I pick it up. Uh, hello. And I hear, uh, hello, Ray. It's uh, Bill Torrey from the Islanders. And I'm like, oh, hi, Bill. I, I guess I'm coming to the Islanders. <laughs> and he says, you haven't talked to EJ yet? And I'm like, no. He goes, ah, oh, for you know what sakes. He's like, uh, oh, call me back when you hear from him. So I hang up. Two minutes later, EJ calls. I'm like, uh, hey, EJ, I guess I'm going to the Islanders, eh? And he's like, well, how do you know? I said, I just talked to Bill. Oh. He's like, oh, sorry about that. It shouldn't have worked that way. Yada, yada, yada. So now I call Bill back. Bill's like, welcome to the Islanders. Um, we play we play in Calgary. This is a, like a Tuesday. We play in Calgary Thursday. And I'm like, okay. He's like, uh, call this number. Uh, we'll get you a flight. And uh, you got to go to Calgary. I'm going to point like, out it's uh, probably Joanne Hollowa who is still there 30 years 30 Joanne years later. Joanne Hollowa runs the, the Joanne Hollowa runs the Islanders. Let's be clear here. He's, Joanne is the best. Yeah. And so I call, I don't know Joanne yet, and I'm like, "Hi, it's Ray." And she's like, "Yep, yeah, I got to get you a flight to the island or to Calgary uh, from There's no direct Hartford to Calgary yeah. flights, by the way. So they want me out there early. And I'm like, but I don't have my equipment. Like I got to go get my equipment. There were no debit cards then. I had to get some money. And so I'm like the earliest flight I can get. I think it was like one o'clock or whatever. So I, I get on this, I go get my stuff. I come back. Now I'm racing home to get my luggage to go to the airport. I get pulled over for speeding. The policeman says, you know, license registration I had. He's like, oh, hey, you just got traded yesterday. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I did. And he's like, well, I'll give you a little zip here. You know, good good luck to you. All the best. And, uh, you know, you had a nice career here in Hartford. Boom. So I zipped home, got my suitcase, jumped in a plane. I go to, uh, I fly to Calgary. I get there at like 11 at night. I walk in. My roommate, who I don't know who it is, is asleep turns out to be don maloney wow who was uh a, a teammate of mine in hartford a couple of years before but i don't know that till the morning so like i get into <laughs> fall asleep wake up and, oh hey don how are you so we go to the rink i meet al arbor i meet lauren henning and darcy regeer they were the assistants and going for the morning skate and uh al says you're playing with berg and del garno now, I don't know who these guys are. Could you are. have named their first names at the time? No idea. So I look, and there's Bill Berg. He's number four. And I'm like, that can't be a good thing. He was a defenseman a forward. A defenseman. I'm like, wait a minute, he's my left winger. And I didn't know Brad Delgarno at all. So they're my line mates for my first game. Uh, we win 4-3 in overtime. I got two goals. It it was awesome. I don't think I scored for 10 games after that, but it was, you know, that was my, that was my first trip into, to see, see what the Islanders were all about. Don Maloney thing is amazing. The idea that you, when he woke, you didn't know until he woke up who your who this person was like, oh, in your hey, room. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, eventually you started scoring again. And I believe in your first full season, you go 40, 40, 80 or something along yeah. those lines. Yeah. What was it that, that 
clicked for you? Uh, opportunity um, that um, that maybe wasn't quite there at the end in Hartford. It was there earlier, but I kind of fell out of favor in Hartford. So I got new opportunity. Uh, Al, um, man, if anybody had the chance to play for Al, like it, it was just the best because like there was no, as you know, Chris, like there was no tiptoeing around with Al. Like this is it. I need you to do this. If you can't do this, I'm going to have to find somebody else to do it. But he gave you the opportunity. And so the opportunity felt fresh. And then he put me on a line with Benny Hogue and Pat Flatley. And there are lines that are supposed to work, and then there are lines that just do. And we did. So Hogie was super fast, and he could shoot. And Flats was the best corner man of anybody that I ever played with. Like, I remember going in to help him in the corner. And we come back to the bench, and he's like, get out of there. I'll get the puck. I don't need you in there. Me and him would argue on the bench. Flats would have, like, snot coming down his nose, sweat pouring off his face. I'd be yelling at him. He'd be yelling at me. Benny would be telling us to, oh, shut the F up. (laughs) He just, you know. And then we go on the ice and have a really great shift. Like, I just loved playing with those guys. And... There was something about that team. Like, you know, we made the trade and we got Pierre Turgeon. And, like, Pete was such an amazing guy because he was, man, you you just loved the guy. Everybody loved Pierre. He was such a sweet guy. And, he, you know, he's playing with Derek King and Steve Thomas. And all of a sudden we're scoring all these goals. And then these two Russian guys show up on the blue line. You know, Vladdy Malikov and Darius Kasparaitis two completely different personalities and players just changed our team. Yeah. You know, and so all of a sudden we're like, we're pretty good somehow all of a sudden. And Al would, Al had the right touch. Like the, you know, when you played well, Al was really hard on you. When you were playing poorly, Al would build you up block by block. Cause he knew when you were playing well, you could, you could take the criticism when you're playing poorly you already you already had enough problems right and so it all just kind of fit it was it was the best hockey that i played when i was with the islanders the i know things kind of be, you know might feel like they become legendary over time but like i'm not kidding you i've been saying this forever it's a very vivid time personally in my lifetime. You might know I got married between the Washington and Pittsburgh series. Yes. Good timing. Good <laughs> um, timing. Shows the faith I had in you guys when we booked the date. <laughs> but, but Ray, okay, I, I, you got a zillion goals in junior, right? And you're a strong NHL player. But for four weeks, six weeks, like, I think you were the best player in the NHL, which then makes you the best player in the world. I'm not kidding. We're in Washington, and it feels like every time I came back up to the press box, Ginger was saying, Ray just scored again. So I know this feels like the Chris Farley part of the, you know, remember when you did the deals, but but, but I, I always wonder, I've never actually, like, you. did you feel that at the time? What's it like to... And then you wind up carrying the team after Pierre gets hurt. Is that a, it's obviously a special time, but in the moment, 
what does that feel like? Did you feel like, is it a hot hand? Is it, this is all coming together for me? This is the player um, I thought I could It be. was so unexpected, Chris, okay. because uh, in November of that year, I uh, broke my leg and dislocated my ankle. Right. And I missed about three months. So I come back with six games left. And, and, and Al, I'm sure, had kind words and welcoming words yeah, back to you. And Yeah, well, he said, you know, I, I had to go play in the minors for a couple of games. I yeah. played the first game, and I'm like, I'm going to get killed here. You know, like the guys are young and flying all over the place, and I'm like, so I called myself back up, basically. I drove back. I was supposed to play two games in New Haven. I drove back up. Al sees me and says, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm ready to play. He says, well, you better be. That was kind of our pregame chat so i play the first couple games i'm going north the puck's going south i turn east the puck goes west i'm terrible i'm just like i'm not even close so i've got my ankle taped up in a boot um because i was worried about it so finally i'm like you know what i can't play like this and so i didn't go on the ice with any tape I, like very little tape and all of a sudden i got a little more mobility left but the real key to this thing was so there's three games left. We lose at home to somebody. We're playing on the road the next day. So the coach's office was right next door to that little stick room. And so I was getting my sticks for the road game to put out on the wall. And Joey McMahon comes in, our trainer, and says, hey, Razor, Al wants to see you. And I'm like, that's not going to go well. So I kind of dodge over to the lounge to get out of the way. Well, eventually, they count, 10 minutes later, they find me, and they're like, Al wants you. I figured maybe he's calmed down by this time because I knew the meeting wasn't going to go well. So I knock on the door. I step in. It's just Al. I don't know where Lorne or, or Darcy were. And um, uh, Al says, uh, Seagull? You, got, you called me Seagull. I wonder because why, if I right? If I wasn't pooping, I was squawking. So, and now you're a broadcaster. Yes, so he was right again. So he says, Seagull, you got three games to get going or else you're going to be sitting with Claire. Now, Claire was his wife. And he said, and she's been in the same goddamn seats for 22 years. <laughs> I was literally, Chris, two feet inside the door. So I just stopped and I'm standing there. And he says, well, do you understand? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, that's all. In other words... Here's your chance. You got three games. If not, I got to use somebody else. So I left. Well, I scored the next game, didn't score the second game, scored the third game. So now the playoffs start. Scored two out of three games. We're not supposed to beat Washington. I score in the first game. We lose 3 1. After the, the next day, we're going to practice. Al kicks all the media off the bus. And he just blisters into us about, you guys are just happy to be here. If you're happy to be here, get off the bus if you want to stay if you think we can win be here was so, that at um uh at the naval town because we stayed yes, at uh, annapolis. annapolis sorry annapolis, annapolis yes. so he goes go on the ice don't go on the ice i don't care but make sure you're ready to play game two well we win game two in overtime we win game three in overtime i didn't get credited with the winner in game two That's, you mean there was another uh, goal you got that serious yeah, that, that, but they, they gave it to Mully, to Brian Mully. All right. That's fine. Mully's the best. So 
We win game two. I score in game three in overtime. I score in game four in overtime. So, I mean, like, man, this is pretty awesome. I've scored, you know, like every game. We lose game five in Washington 6-4, and I get all four goals. And I'm riding back in my car after the game. You know, we fly back now. We've got to play game six. And I'm like, like, this is unbelievable. Like, not only am I scoring every game, I think I'm going to score every game. Like, whatever the zone is, it's undefinable, but there is a feeling of confidence and want that I remember that I wanted the puck. I wanted to make the play. I wanted it on my stick. I wanted to be in the middle of it all. And then we go to game six and, uh, you know, we win. And that's the Dale Hunter Turgeon play. We lose Turge for the next series. And if there was ever a moment where I knew this was my time, it's in game one against Pittsburgh because they're favored by a million. Like, it's not even a series. Two lineups are on the board. You'd look at them and go, that team on the left cannot beat that team on the right. Lemieux, Yager, Francis, for starters. Lemieux, Yager, Francis, Mullen, Murphy. Joey Mullen. They might have had the better Mullen. It's debatable. All five of those guys, Hall of Famers. Oh, yeah, Paul Coffey, six. And we got heels in goal, no terge, me, Stumpy, Derek King. The kid line. Pat Flatley, the Delgarno, Green, McGinnis. Like, that's our team, right? So, in game one, I take a penalty. About a, a minute later, somebody else takes a penalty. So now we're down five on three to these five Hall of Famers on the ice. At the end of the power play, they make a pass back to Larry Murphy and Tom Fitzgerald, who's now the GM in New Jersey, he dives and tips the puck. It bounces over Larry Murphy's stick just as I come out of the penalty box. I get a breakaway. I go in and I score. Only move I have, fake to the forehand, go to the backhand, and I score. The only shorthanded goal I ever scored in professional hockey. I didn't, I didn't know That's that. it. So at that point, I'm thinking things are going <laughs> pretty good. So through the series, there's ups and downs. And by the time we get to game seven, Pierre's back kind of with one shoulder. We've lost Travis Green. Like our, our team's on fumes. And David Bollock, who the owner's wanted Al to trade all year and Al to- kept telling him to go to hell. Um, I can conf- I can double two- confirm that. That is true. Yeah. David scores twice in game seven, including the winner in overtime. And what I remember most about that, when we were in the corner mobbing David, I could, you know, so I'm in the middle of that pack because mm-hmm. I passed to him. So I'm like in the middle of the pack. I can hear heels screaming from the far end as he's coming to join the pack the rink was so quiet yeah. it was it was the best it was the best moment of my career right there in the zone that's what that's what the that zone is i have one more question about the washington series so uh when i, I just mentioned on twitter I'd be starting this podcast and if you have any questions we'll start to take them and nobody knows at the time who's coming on the podcast but i get this question from elliot politoff and you can confirm or deny or change the subject. 
Man, those were, oh, I should have worn my glasses. I'm 56 now, right? Uh, man, those were fun days at the Coliseum. Still remember Ray Ferraro trying to get at Dale Hunter in the hallway by the locker rooms after the Turgeon mugging. I was in between them trying to get Ferraro to post-game interview with Stan Fischler. Life passed before my eyes. Is this true, Ray Ferraro? I can't, I can't <laughs> say that if I was trying to get down there, I wasn't trying to get down there very hard. Because <laughs> what happens if you get down there? Hatcher. <laughs> yeah, you get down there. There's, you know, like, I probably, I, I'm guessing I was, because I, you know, I have lots to say. I probably was... Chirping from a safe distance down I, there. I was in the hallway too, and I just remember it being mayhem. And I remember Dale walking. I remember mayhem. Dale walking by, and like, what am I gonna do, right? Like, you know, but like, you, you know, you all wanted to get at him, but what, what are you gonna do? You know. So yeah, it was. Uh, I rem- it, and so that could never happen today, because in no arena does the visiting team walk by the home team's locker room. The hallway was four feet wide, five feet wide. Like it was a bowling alley. It was built for problems. Yeah. Uh, with a couple minutes we have left, I just want to do a kind of a name association thing. If you could spend a minute or so uh, on what you your memories of these people, uh, and I, and obviously I start with uh, a, a sad one, the tragic loss of our dear friend Tom Curvers. Uh, it was so nice to see the tributes from around hockey and to see how much he meant to people and, and his friends in, uh, in the uh, Twin Cities area. And it was so moving. But Tom was on that team, was a good teammate, had his moments with Al Arbor too. Um, yeah. Your thoughts on Tom Kerber's as a teammate with the Islanders? Well, kind, thoughtful, smart, quirky, funny. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of my favorite Tom Kerber's stories. Um Man, I love the guy. He just, he was an amazing guy. And we lived very parallel lives. Um, we were married, had two kids, divorced, remarried, had two more kids. Hmm. And our boys are much the same age. Um, so I'm in, I'm up in Canada. I'm retired. Uh, there's a Sunday night game going on in the NFL. It's Peyton Manning against somebody. I forget who. And it was a... It could have. It might have been San Diego when Philip Rivers, you know, when they when San Diego was good and there was like all this excitement, and at the at the the Grey Cup was going on at the same time, and the Canadian Football League Championship. So Curb sends me a text, and he says, "Hey, uh, I'm stuck watching Sunday Night Football down here. How's the Grey Cup going?" He said, "Do you still get a single point?" for kicking it over the neighbor's garage. And I, I just, to me, that's just, that's such curves humor. Yeah. Uh, just a just a wonderful person, a wonderful person. You mentioned earlier about how we all continue to grow. And so he was on the kid line. And I don't mean, I, I mean this in the nicest way because he had, to me, in my eyes, he had so many other interests. I would I, I would not have been good at guessing the guys who played on all those teams that I worked for who would become head coaches and good head coaches. I didn't think Travis Green was going to, at 22, would be an NHL head coach. It, that might be unbelievably unfair for me to say. Your thoughts on Travis? 
uh, I would have never guessed. Okay, so uh, I'm not crazy. Because, so, but here's the trajectory of Travis. So I grew up in Trail, British Columbia. Travis grew up in Castlegar, British Columbia, mm-hmm. about 12, 15 miles away. So I had heard of Travis. He was a big scorer with the Spokane Chiefs in the Western League, second round draft pick. So here's Travis's career arc. Big scorer. Then he came to the Islanders and me and Pierre were there. Turgeon. Now he's a checker. Then he was a two-way player. Then he morphed into a glue guy. And then morphed into a hard worker, which Travis really wasn't at the start of his career. And then he went to coach with Mike Johnston in Portland. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't see Greeny as a coach. I really don't. But his evolution as a, as a person through his career to evolve, um, to be different players to different teams, to extend his career, he, his connection to his players is really quite, quite interesting to watch. He's a, you know, I, I see him quite a bit here in Vancouver where I live and he's an excellent tactician. He's demanding, he's fair, he's direct. He says he stole a lot from Al. He stole a lot from Pat Quinn. Um, and so, uh, Travis is an excellent head coach and had Vancouver not re-signed him, they were making a colossal mistake. Good. And he would have landed somewhere else eventually. I have no big lead into this next name. Just two words. Darius Kasparitis. Okay, so we're playing Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's always a Casper Casper would say, Oh, tonight, tonight guys, I get Yager. I get Yager. And he'd spend the whole game taking thirty foot runs at Yarmor Yager. There is in game four of that series Game four, yeah, game four was back in Long Island, and no, you know what? I'm sorry, it was game six, and it was mayhem in game six. Oh, that was the back and forth six four six. You know. I think it ended up eight six. Or you know, every eight, I kept five, on visiting six. friends in the stands, and goals were being scored. And so in that game, Casper took a couple of runs at Mario. Then he took a 30-foot run at Yager. He loved it. Loved being in the middle of the game. Like, if he was in the game, you knew he was in the game. And his personality, even when he didn't speak uh, understandable English, he talked all the time. Like, it was impossible not to be drawn into his energy. And so, I always used to tell him, Casper... If there's no puck in the game, you're in the all-star game every year. And he'd be like, oh, I get you a practice. I get you a practice. I just, I loved having him on my team. He, I didn't like playing against him. I liked having him on my team. Is Steve Thomas up there with, like, the top five relentless teammates you've ever had? And one of the top five teammates I ever had. Mm, I, just, I love Stumpy. What a, what a competitor. Uh, an engine that never quit. Um never never gave in to anything even when he probably should have uh, late in his career he ends up signing in Anaheim and I was working in, as a broadcaster at that time and so they get to game 7 in 2004 and I remember having a beer with him somewhere and I'm like Stump like you guys can win like and he would like he just he was so excited you know to get that close uh, to win but I 
man, what a, what a guy. Funny, driven, um, tough, and he could shoot. Man, he could shoot. And you mentioned him earlier as a duo because they uh, they couldn't be more different. I had the opportunity, so I was uh, really lucky to uh, interview Al Arbor about a year before he passed, and I brought up Vladimir Malikov, and Al's like, what are you doing to me, Chris? You know? Um, can can you describe the town? I remember we had a softball game, uh, and he had never played yes. before, and he took like two swings and like looked like he again he didn't know what he's doing, and then his third swing he hit it four hundred feet. Like the the athlete that this I I can't articulate it as a pro. What um, would you say? I mean, Vladdy was incredibly frustrating to play with because he was so good. Right. Like. I don't know if he didn't understand how good he was, but he was an amazing player. Big. He fought Joe Kosher in training camp. We're like, what is he doing? (laughs) But he was big enough to handle the toughest guy in the league or one of the toughest guys in the league. Um, He could shoot the puck. He was agile, big. When he was, when he locked into a game, um, he he was the best play could be the best player on the ice. Now I roomed with him, which was kind of a an odd couple. Yeah. So I knew that he didn't speak any English. So um, you know he was learning and pick up a few words here and and uh, uh, so I used to say, hey big dummy, let's get going. Hey big dummy, let's get going. So I don't know, Christmas time or something, he comes up to me and he says, hey. I know what big dummy is. I know big dummy. And I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) He was something. So he was, you know, I saw him, Chris, at a world championships a couple of years ago. And it it was just, I I know he was more, well, he's older, but more comfortable, you know, like it was just really great to see him. Like really great to see him. That's awesome. Uh, Last name is Pierre Turgeon. Um, he seems to have meant a lot to you, your years together. One, and, and one of the one of the greatest people I've ever been around in the game. There are players that you meet, or people that you meet uh, sometimes, and you think they're so nice, it's got to be an act. It's a little bit phony. How could you be like this all the time? If you're around Pierre Turgeon day after day after day, that's what you come up with. He is the nicest person you're around. He is. Uh, he was incredibly talented, incredibly talented. I think he's going to be one of those players that one day the Hall of Fame committee takes a look at and uh, says, "Hey, wait a minute." Um, as far as an accumulator of points, he belongs. Yeah, the numbers are there. Uh, Dale, Dave, Dave Andrichuk made it in the Hall of Fame. To me, he was accumulator. Mm-hmm. Played twenty three years, right? And he accumulated over 600 goals but at no time did you think and this isn't disrespectful to dave it's building a case for pierre at no time did we think hey dave andrechuk's the focus of our Mm -hmm. of our game plan team's game plan for pierre Pierre. remarkable uh, season i i want to close with this you said in the broadcast uh, segment of the podcast and thank you so much for doing this right um about how you don't root for teams you're not going to get the cup yeah. even the islanders blah, blah blah but 
this was pretty special this summer, closing out Nassau Coliseum. They even closed it out with a win, right? Which is a nice way to go, even though they didn't reach yeah. the ultimate prize. You know, thinking about your time on Long Island, thinking about the fans and your, your years here, uh, what were your thoughts as you were watching that unfurl and the Coliseum having its moment where people over the last few years like, oh, those fans really are loud. They really are good. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the Coliseum kind of was like this old place, but it was our old place, right? And the way the noise would vibrate in there, one, one moment and feeling I will never forget, Chris, is... Um, I scored the overtime winner in game four. Uh, Claude Loisel passed it across to Tom Fitzgerald. Fitzy hit me in the middle of the ice. and Or rather, Fitzy to Claude, Claude to me in the middle. And I beat Rick Tabaracci. And then Fitzy dove on me and tackled me. So we were on the ice. And I could feel the floor move. Like I could feel the vibration of the arena. And I was underneath everybody. And it was amazing. Um, my last time in the Coliseum was John Tavares' first game. Oh. Back. That was a circus. A different kind of vibration. And like, and I, but I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Like, the, they can't build a building like the Coliseum anymore because the roof was so low and the sand stands were so steep. and But... That it was ours. That place was home. So what? So watching them in the playoffs. Looking at, in oh, in the playoffs, it was another level. And 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 so you got you you could watch what happened in twenty twenty one and say, I I know that feeling. I know that. I know those guys. Those guys are getting the jet boost from what's going on there. I'm looking forward to seeing the new building. It looks spectacular. But the Coliseum probably can fit in the new building three times. (laughs) Probably. Ray, this was fantastic. I can't really can't thank you enough for uh, being so generous with your time on the broadcast side and the Islander side. I appreciate it, buddy. Uh, anytime, Chris, and uh, we'll have to do it again. Thank you. All right, producer Pat Boyle here now with Chris, and while wow, Ray Ferraro was as awesome as we hoped he would be, and here on the the first episode of Hockey Press Pass, he is just the first of many great guests, broadcasters, members of the media that we have lined up here for the first season, Chris. Yeah, big thanks to Ray. And, and that's really the, the point of the show is we we want to, we know there's a lot of great hockey podcasts out there. Uh, the angle of this show is to just bring that specific angle of, you know, who are, the, who are in the hockey media? How did they get here? How do they do their work? What are their lessons for the next generations or for the people like you who are going to be future play-by-play announcers in the league or in other sports? Ray gets us off to a great start. I'm lucky to say that on my phone, I've been able to reach out to a lot of the top national and local writers and broadcasters, sideline reporters, producers in the game, and we have a really great lineup all season. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, we're encouraging listeners and fans of the podcast and listeners and fans of the podcast to be as we move along here. Uh, any questions, any thoughts you guys have for us, for Chris, for the guests, please feel free. We've set up an email account. Uh, email your questions, your thoughts, your suggestions to us all season long. We'll be reading some questions uh, on the podcast, and you can do that at presspasspodcast at gmail.com. Presspasspodcast at gmail.com. And for the 
first episode here to finish up as we did with Ray. The first question comes from Kay Cahill from Levittown. And Chris, they want to know, in your two decades in PR with the Islanders, what's the biggest lesson you learned that you would share with future PR directors in hockey? So we're starting off with an easy one, I see. <laughs> uh, that was nice enough. We got a great response when I asked on Twitter for a few questions, and we already have enough uh, that we could do an extra special season. Uh, so to Kay Cahill, um, I know when I get asked this question, Pat, uh, like when I visit colleges, people assume that I'm probably going to talk about John Spano or the <laughs> Fisherman jersey or my time with the different general managers and the struggling teams. Um, but I try to impart uh, some wisdom, some lessons. And one of the things that, that I would say is that uh, the way that as a hockey PR director, I dealt with what we'd call the tough guys in the league, the enforcers, the fourth-line grinders, the guys who are really in the trenches. Um, that was something that I had to, to learn with over time. Yeah, most commonly, especially guys that would be getting in fights, and you know, I guess perhaps you know, these guys' emotions run hotter than, than a lot of others on the team and you know, might need some time to cool off <laughs> after games a little bit more than other players. Yeah, and, and you know, I was there 20 years, and I'm not going to lie, I, I have a lot of regrets. Um, I feel like I owe an apology. In some cases, I, I have talked to players either in the moment or over time, and it took me a while to learn this. And I understand also the game's a little bit different now than it was even 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, I think of... Uh, guys I just have the ultimate respect for, like Eric Cairns and Steve Webb and Eric Goddard, um, uh, Simon, uh, just uh, Ken Baumgartner uh, through the years. And so my point is that in the, in the NHL, is basically it's a 10-minute rule, Pat, and that the locker room has to be open to the media after. And I always took pride in my job. You know, I, I'm there for the media. I'm there for the team as well. I'm the liaison. Mm -hmm. I'm that middle person along with my staff who I could not have done anything uh, without and uh, without their help. And But I would say when it came to, I think, of Karenzy and Webb, and, and by the way, I don't think, you know, they wouldn't, they didn't mind. Like, we, it never got to be, like, a, a problem. They were professional. They were better than me. Yeah. But when I look back at that time, I just feel like, there were moments in when games, when things were really hot, brawls with the Rangers, tough games with the Flyers, things like that, where I feel like I probably should have been more respectful to give them more time to be available. Like if they had to come out a little bit longer or needed an extra 10 minutes while the media talked to the coach and the other guys, that'd be more, uh, that would be fine. Um, you know, I think of Simon, uh, he had a, a few major suspensions when he was with the Islanders, and I was like sitting right next to him right after he came off the ice after he hit Darren Langdon uh, with his stick on the Rangers, and after he stomped on a player on Pittsburgh, uh, Route 2, I believe. And he, he couldn't have been better, um, but I, there were, again, I, I just, it's my biggest regret. So, so what I would say to the PR directors now, and I certainly did have this conversation with some of my colleagues back then, is that, you know, we, we need to understand, and we're learning more about heavyweights of the past and, and how they thought about fighting the guy who they had to fight the next night. And there's so much more to that 
than I think a lot of us, and by the way, I think a lot of the PR directors around the league are great, um, that I, I certainly would give uh, more respect to. That's the common phrase here. So more time to the people who really have it tough, certainly for all players, uh, but especially be mindful of that. Uh, I'm sure that's going on now. At least I hope that's going on now more around the league. If they need some more time, maybe if they even need to not be available right away, they can get a mulligan and talk the next morning at practice. I think it's just important to be sensitive or more sensitive to the job that they had. I think I was okay with it. I would hope they wouldn't kill me, those guys. Uh, <laughs> I've maintained pretty good relationships with, with most of them. But that's definitely uh, something that, that I would, more time. I, I know I'm being repetitive, but just more time. What do, where do you stand on fighting? And, yeah, and, yeah. well, I just think really to finish that up, I, you know, I, I think it's so easy to forget that these guys are human. Yeah. And they're human and they're playing a game in front of 20,000 fans on most night where, especially in playoff hockey, the stakes are high every single game and the emotions are running high. And that doesn't just, there's not an easy switch to just flip off and become a, you know, less driven human and just answer questions especially tough questions especially after a loss and you mentioned a lot of these enforcers there where if they pick up a penalty or if they do something where you're watching on tv and you go oof or guys you know a hit that a guy might be getting suspended for that is not easy to go and then answer the press 10 minutes after the game ends and have to answer tough questions scrutinizing questions that you know are going to make headlines. Yeah, so it's it's a it's people a great, forget that. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and thank you for bringing that up. I I think back to like the '80s, right? And so I would see Gary Howard and Clark Gillies and guys and for all the local teams, and and to me it just seemed like a sport. It seemed like part of the game, and then like nothing changed. And and then now now all of a sudden I'm working for this team of my youth. And I just think, just like Bossy and Palfi scored, that this guy would fight, and now this guy fights, and this was just kind of part of their job, and they don't have to really think about it. It's just like, and uh, again, I, certainly part of this has to do with overtime. You know, we've suffered, uh, there's been some great losses around the league of uh, some uh, great men who have lost their lives. And um, so that even makes me more mindful of it now. But it, I think what I would say is I took it for granted and it took me a while. I think in my last few years, I was definitely more mindful and got better of it. And it just, uh, so when I'm asked the biggest regret or the biggest lesson learned is KK Hill asked here, that is actually it. It's not about some of the things that I couldn't control, like a fisherman jersey or crazy <laughs> ownership or things like that. It's just that I, I wish I had shown more respect at times uh, to the, the, especially the tough guys on the team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then to, to answer your question about where do yeah, I stand yeah. on fighting in hockey, I'm 26. I love it. And, again, all the things you just brought up about what goes into fighting and the potential repercussions, uh, especially with a lot of injuries we're seeing with guys, and, and, you know, you bring up CTE, how popular that's become in football and, and hockey and guys that have moved on from the game. That's tough to take all that into account. When I see fights in hockey, I love it. You know, it, it brings enter it brings a, another layer of entertainment. It's something that's basically only in hockey, where you can actually fight a person, and it's you know not technically legal because you're gonna get five minutes in the box, but it's a part of the game. And I think that is what most of hockey's core fans love about it. It can swing a game's momentum. It can light up an arena. It can change the course of a game. It can change the course of a potential stretch of games. Uh, but you're right, there's other things that go into into a negative aspect that 
you know, I don't necessarily take into account, and a lot of people don't take into account, you know, I, I think for those who don't like fighting, I, I don't know how you can be a huge fan of hockey and not like fighting, so I, again, I get it, and I, I understand where we've gone as a society over the last 20 years where they want less fights. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's part of the game, and I think it's always great when you get a good fight on the ice. Oh, I hear you, Pat. I, I'm all over the place when it comes to my opinion on that. I think of the 2002 series against Toronto. Toronto won all their home games. The Islanders won all their home games in Game 6. Cairns pummeled uh, Corson of the Leafs. And, like, I, you know, I... I don't think, like, that was, like, one of the, I understand the Islanders didn't win that series, but just that one game, that as an event, the passion, the fire, the skill, too, the talent, everything that went into that is, like, I don't think any sport compares to a game like that. And we see some games like that now, although fighting is definitely down. I will say, as the guys seem to get bigger and stronger, I get worried. Uh, when I see somebody get nailed with a big punch, uh, you see the respect that the fighters have for each other. They will let up at times. I, that worries me. So I don't have a, like I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. I understand why it's there. I understand why people think it should be gone. Uh, for now, I won't opine on that. But I certainly appreciate yours as a as a younger fan. Um, but uh, again, just a, a last you know a tip of the hat to. All the guys that I worked with, the middleweights, the, the flyweights, the heavyweights, uh, anybody who threw a big check or took a big check, uh, there is nothing like this game and the passion and intensity of it. And uh, I always tried to do it justice, uh, but sometimes maybe I wasn't always at, with my, at my best with those guys. So shout out to all them and, and big thanks and gratitude. Yeah, and, uh, and thank you again to K.K. Hill from Levittown. And again, uh, email your questions, your thoughts for future episodes to press pod, excuse me, press pass podcast at gmail.com. We're going to be messing that up all season, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about triple that. triple P. Yes, we hope you enjoyed the premiere episode of Hockey Press Pass. Please consider rating us and subscribing at Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Big thanks to Ray Ferraro, to the sponsors of this episode, Instat Hockey and DraftKings, executive producer Danny Ryland Carney, producer Pat Boyle, thanks Pat, marketing director Sally Kinsman. I uh, also really want to acknowledge a few people who were a huge help to me this summer as we were preparing this. Among them, Haseem Phillips, Sean Dennison, Courtney O'Connell, Matt Choquette, Ed Palumbo, Ted, uh, Tom Rackesey, Keith Lopez, Steve Moralia, Devin Barrich, and Jason Poteri. Most especially, my gratitude goes to you for giving us a shot. Check back every Thursday morning for the latest edition of Hockey Press Pass.